0: Comparative for James. James is sort of the New Testament, uh, I guess, equivalent of Proverbs in a sense. In that, James has these statements that just and and sections of statements, little little phrases and little segments that stand on their own, and they seem they seem to be somehow at times separate it's like he's just shooting out this knowledge. Uh, Again, like last Wednesday night, we established James was one of Jesus' brothers, uh, physically. So James was born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. So James was literally Jesus' brother. And so in the book of Matthew, when when the Bible says that uh, Jesus did not do many miracles in Nazareth because of the unbelief of the people... The people were offended at Jesus because they didn't understand because they looked around and they saw Jesus' brothers and sisters. And they said, who is this man that gets all this gracious knowledge and wisdom? Aren't these his brothers and sisters? It may be that James was one of those. Um, James was martyred for his faith. And uh, it's amazing to me that he was one of Jesus' brothers and grew up with him, yet he, he knew who he was. That's a great testimony to the Messiahship of Christ because if Jesus had not been the Messiah and if he had sinned and if he had been just a normal child, surely his own brother would have seen that at some point. But for James to call him Lord and worship him and kneel at his feet and be willing... You know something else we need to think about? How many things in this world are you willing to die for? If the soldiers had come and stolen Jesus' body like the romans tried to spread the rumor you really think the disciples would have died for that or if the disciples themselves had hidden the body do you think they would have died to propagate a rumor i don't think so somebody's not going there's not too many things somebody would give their lives for and these men died because they knew the truth all right we're taking this verse-by-verse, verse, sometimes phrase-by-phrase, phrase, if we need to, word-for-word. Word. Last Wednesday night, we actually studied basically one word and a phrase, the very first of the serious verses past the salutation, which is James 1-2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And last Wednesday night, we talked about the concept of considering things. How do we consider life? Consider means your perspective, your worldview. How do you view life? What is your worldview? How do you process life? What's your attitude? What's your outlook? From what perspective are you walking through life? That's that's huge in the life of a Christian. Now, I am not going to tell you that everything James tells us to do is easy, because it ain't. But it's powerful and it's good, and the fact of the matter is, God never calls us to do anything He does not equip us to do. 2 Peter 1.3 is one of the most powerful passages, and the few verses after, in the whole Bible. And it tells us that we have, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now think about that. His divine power is what it says. His divine power has given us, not going to, has given us, already done. Everything we need for life and godliness. Notice those two are together. In the world today, a lot of Christians separate those concepts. Well, this is church and this is the this is my Christian thing, but this is real life over here. God never intended it to be that way. He intended for Christianity and life to be inextricably interwoven and dovetailed together in a beautiful a symbiotic relationship where, where Christianity dominated the life that we live and exudes through everything we say and do and everything we are. Now, that's easy for me to spout up here. It's a little more difficult to live that out. But the closer we are to God and the more determined we are to do it with God's help, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, comma, Never put a comma where God puts a period, and never put a period where God puts a comma. That's important. Comma, according to our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, basically is what it says. So, we're going to talk about this phrase tonight, and we're going to start connecting this first verse a a little bit more intricately. So, we talked about considerate. Now, tonight we're going to talk about considerate pure joy, my dear brothers, and a little bit later on, we'll start tying into whenever you face trials of many kinds. So let's, let's start by talking about trials for just a minute and having a little discussion about the concept of trials, all right? Um, trials come to us from a variety of sources. How many of you have a study sheet right in front of you? Everything I'm saying, if you need one, if you don't have one, raise your hand. Y'all got them, all right. If you look at your first point there, trials come to us from a variety of sources, The first there is trouble that we help create. Now, how many times in our lives have we ourselves generated the trouble that we find ourselves in? I see hands going up. (laughs) A lot of times, those are the trials that we face. Uh, we, we, We create our own. Now, let me tell you something. I said this last week, and it's important for us to understand it. Everywhere we go, every single day, we have a pack of seed with us. And we are sowing seed all day long. We're sowing seed in the words we speak. We're sowing seed in the attitudes that we have that nobody sees but God. Those are invisible seeds to the world, but God sees them. We're slinging them out there. The motives by which we do things, why do we do what we do, how we really feel about humanity. I'm amazed the older I get, the more I realize there's a lot of people in this world that hate everybody. It's just the truth. I'm not just talking about Muslims that want to cut our heads off either. I am not my Christians that go to church every week right here in good old USA. There's a lot of people, if you gave them $10 million of it, they'd disappear, you'd never hear from them again. A lot of people, they, they, they want to be able to just get away from it all. I know that's the name of my TV show, but I'm talking about, they want to really get away from it all. Um, you, you know, I, I've often thought it's pretty hard to fulfill the Great Commission all by yourself. Hmm. that's where the and and many of the gnostics were wrong too all right so trials come to us from a variety of sources one is trouble we help create so we we walk around with seed all the time and some of it we sow is good some of it we sow is not so good the more good seed we sow and the less bad seed we sow means the more good harvest is going to come up and the less thorns and thistles and briars and weeds are going to come up yes now God is under no obligation to follow us around with a big jug of Roundup and spray it on all the weeds we sow. Nor does, nor does he have a, a squad of angels with weed eaters and hoes. We, I wish he did because my lawnmower broke and my yard's like, a, I some, I'm, I'm concerned somebody's going to try to rob us because they think nobody lives there anymore. Um, I'm joking. But I've got a garden area terrace little garden area that the guy before me that owned the house built out to the side he made a terrible mistake because he built it in the in the predominant shade of all these pine trees so nothing much grows very good and you have to really kind of work it to get anything to grow but you know what i've noticed every year when i go out there if i don't plant tomatoes no tomatoes come up if i don't plant squash i don't get no squash if i don't plant peppers there's no peppers but you know what's out there every year whether i plant it or not Weeds. In our natural state, our our normal, unregenerated, unplowed, unseeded nature just produces weeds. But a regenerated, fertilized, plowed spirit that is seeded with the Word of God will produce the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the good things that God has for us. So... Trials come to us in the trouble we help create. Secondly, trials come to us from attacks from the enemy and attacks from people. Everything that people do to us that is mean or seemingly unfair is not necessarily directly inspired of Satan. There are three kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of, of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. There's also the kingdom of man. We have the power of choice. There's a whole bunch of stuff that has happened in the world. And I think the devil on one hand and maybe God on the other both walk around their thrones going, man, why are they blaming me for this stuff? I didn't have anything to do with this. They did this all on their own. You know, We have the power to choose a lot of times what we do. And just because something happens doesn't mean it's God's will. That's not what Romans 8.28 means. A lot of people think Romans 8.28 means that no matter what happens in life, it was God's will. No, it's not. I've heard people even twist around as somebody committing suicide was God's will for their life. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I see what God was doing. It's never God's will for a human being to take their own life. So we've got to be careful how we assign responsibility and sometimes blame to God for things that God didn't have anything to do with. That is commensurate with the horrible crime in Ezekiel that the prophet talked about when the false prophets of Israel were saying, thus saith the Lord when the Lord had not spoken. Blaming God for something he didn't do is really the same thing as false prophecy. It's very, very, very dangerous thing to do. So attacks from Satan create trials, and attacks from people um, the, the, uh, the, the policeman who pulled you over for speeding is not the enemy who's attacking you. You brought that. That goes back to number one. That's trouble you brought, you created. If you hadn't been speeding, he wouldn't have pulled you over. The boss man who fired you is not necessarily the evil agent of the dark kingdom. It might be that you were slovenly in your work. So we've got to look at these things. Number three, there are things in life over which we have no control. And sometimes these trials come. Uh, I remember one of the most freak accidents I've ever heard about. Two guys left Atlanta, went to separate colleges their freshman year. They were best friends all their lives. This happened many years ago. After their freshman year, got ready to come home for the summer, they both got back here to Atlanta and got together and hadn't been together hardly any time. Two guys, and they're driving down the road. They drove their little truck down to the stoplight and stopped. And at that very moment, a giant 200-year-old hickory tree fell in the car and killed both of them. Now, that's a sad story, but it just popped in my head. And it's a, a, a classic case of things over which we have no control. Somebody that you love passes away. Madria's here, and we, we applaud her, her courage, and we support her with prayer, because she recently lost her husband. And uh, I know that they were very much in love for many, many years. It's been very hard on Madria. I think it ought to be very hard on any spouse that really love their spouse. And when they lose that spouse, it's, it's something I never want to experience. And I just can't imagine what Madria has gone through. But we pray for you and we love you and our hearts go out to you. And I mean that. And I was honored to be able to speak at the funeral for Richard. And uh, I'll tell you what, boy, it was, it was a moving thing something like that madria has no control over that and that is a trial and she's you know i'm amazed at people that will look at somebody like madria and four or five months down the road well what's wrong with her she's still sad about that she ought to be over that by now you know it's like just don't talk you know people like that just shouldn't talk um never never assume how somebody should process their way through a grieving experience. Anyway, I don't want to get into that, but the things over which we have no control, what Madrid is walking through right now, and let me encourage all of you to love on her when you see her, pray for her and remember her for the next years to come because these things take time. And, and you know, it, like as Shirley Gould, our friend, lost J.R., he just didn't wake up one morning. It's still most, one of the most unbelievable things in, in the world. She still grieves this this past year, uh, a few weeks ago, she spent the whole day, you know, camped out on his grave talking to him, you know. And that's that's not weird. That's not... You can go to Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. You can see the widows of fallen soldiers out there with a whole little picnic thing laid out, and they're laying out there on their husband's grave. You know what? Let them do it. Leave them alone. Let them process however they need to because we don't know how that feels until we walk through it. But these are things a child that's born with a severe challenge or birth defect, Uh, nuclear war, You know, if the grid goes down in this country. I'm going to tell you something. That's what the terrorists really want to do. More than a nuclear bomb to destroy us, if they could set off a nuclear bomb several miles in the atmosphere to knock out the majority of our electrical grid, it would take us between two and five years to restore it. And during that time, FEMA says within 12 months, 90% of the American population would be dead they're wrong. Within four months, 90% of the American population would be dead. Because how many people you know could survive without electricity for four months? Food's going to be gone in three. You know, the grocery stores you go to every week are never more than three days away from empty shelves. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to foment fear. I just want you to th- start thinking about how complicated and how complex the processes that are required for us to go to the grocery store and get food. There are a lot of people in America that think that's where you get food, grocery stores. Yeah. Think about the think about the contracts that have to be signed from farmer to distributor. And then think about from distributor to the smaller distributors, wholesalers to retailers. And then from the retailers, somebody's got to package this stuff, and somebody's got to process it, somebody's got to know when to harvest it, and it's very complicated. And they have to distribute it. Some, you, know, you get oranges from California. How'd those get here? You know, it's, we, we rely on very complex systems. The water, you go home tonight, you turn your tap on, water comes out. You just can't imagine how complicated that really is. We rely on very complex systems. I've got news for you. In nature, water doesn't come from a tower or a tap, and food doesn't come from a truck or a store. It comes from out there in the world, in the woods, in the mountains, in the valleys, in nature. And people who don't know, that's why I've spent a good deal of my time, not totally focused on it, but I have taken a section of my time, and I have learned bushcraft and survival, how how to make a chair out of stuff you find in the woods, how to build a, 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 a sustainable homestead that will last for 20 or 30 years, probably outlast your house, a sustainable homestead, uh, in, in, from, from landscape material, with hand tools, no power tools. These are skills that are lost and forgotten in our generation. So, if, if they did take the grid down, uh, I think about 90 plus percent of Americans are going to be gone in the first three to four months. Because once the food's gone, then the fighting's going to start. And how about medicine? You know, it goes on and on and on. So, Things over which we have no control. If the grid went down, we couldn't control that. We, we, we could respond to it as best we could, but we couldn't control it. I would encourage all of you with all my heart to get on YouTube and start watching some good bushcraft and survival videos. And look, you can watch somebody carve a bow drill set all day long and think you know how to do it. You don't know how to do it until you've built fire with it. So anyway, the last one is test and discipline from God. Now, God does two things to us that are unpleasant. He tests us, and He disciplines us. Now, that includes saying no when we pray, which God does, and saying wait when we pray, which God also does. A lot of these prosperity preachers tell you that God only says yes. If that were true, Abraham would still be alive today. I would be worth $7,500 trillion (laughs) if God said yes every time we prayed. There'd be diamonds sprouting off trees in my yard, you know. So... I'd also be back at 2% body fat and 20-inch biceps, but, you know, (laughs) God requires us to do some things. So, all joking aside, God does test us, and he disciplines us, all right? So, what, what what do we do with these trials, and where do we go from here? These trials that come to us from a variety of sources. Uh, the next point has to do in my mind with the carnal versus the spiritual. Considering these trials, pure joy, just might be one of the most difficult things in life. But I will tell you this. If you can conquer this, no joke now, if you can get to this place where you consider the worst trials in your life a pure joy, and you really feel that way, and it's from the core of your being, And I'm going to tell you, Satan has almost no foothold in your life. You can do almost anything in the spiritual dynamic if you can get to the place. The problem with most of us is that we've been raised in such a negative culture. I mean, everybody has got negative stuff to say. Murphy's Law. If there's a bad one in the bunch, I'll walk right to it and buy it. How many times have you said that? Well, I knew it. I knew it. Had to be this way. If I want it to rain, all i got to do is plan a camping trip. I've heard that stuff all my life. I know one guy that says that all the time. You know what? Every time he goes camping, it rains. Every time. It's amazing. He speaks it over himself, and it just keeps fulfilling itself. One day, after he's 90 or 100, he might figure out, if I shut my pie hole and quit saying that, it might not rain when I go camping. It's amazing. Considering these pure joy might be one of the most difficult things in life. Why? Because it is not our nature to do that. It is not our human nature to produce tomatoes in the soil of our soul. It is our human nature to grow weeds. It is not our human nature to produce cucumbers and squash and peppers and jalapenos and all those things. No, no. It is our nature to grow thorns and thistles and milkweed, and grass, and clover, and all the things, you can not you can't actually do a lot with thistle and clover, but generally weeds is not what we go to a garden to harvest, although there are a lot of them you can eat, you can actually eat kudzu, if you know, if you know what to do with it, dandelion, you can eat the whole thing, anyway, let me stay off the bushcraft stuff, um, <laughs> this time of year, I, I gear back up with my survival and bushcraft stuff, um, so the carnal versus the spiritual, the Bible tells us that, that, that there is a war going on inside us. Now, if you want to read a treatise about this, a, a, a biblical manifesto, then one of the passages in the Bible you can go read. If you just want to, you just want to titillate your mind and, and tease your intellect, then just go to Romans 7 and read Romans 6, 7, and 8. And uh, there's a, a nice little brain pretzel for you. Because Romans 7 is one of the more difficult passages in the whole Bible to exegete correctly and to understand. Because what Paul says basically in Romans 7 is that I've got this carnal nature inside me. And this carnal nature wants to do bad all the time. It wants to do evil. It doesn't want to do right. It doesn't want to please God. It wants to do what I want it to do. But but by the same at the same time, this carnal nature wants to do the bad and, and sin and is tempted and it, and it gravitates. It has the proclivities toward evil. At the same time, my carnal nature is going this way. Within me there's a the spirit of God that's trying to pull me this way. And, and while the Evil is there, and the potential for it is there. The Spirit of God is wooing me. My spirit that yearns for God is is leading me and drawing me toward the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of God and the light and the love of the gospel. So what do I do? These two parts in me are warring at each other constantly. Basically, that's the encapsulation of Romans 7. Paul says, what do I do? And that's at the end of it when he kicks into Romans 8 and says, therefore, there is now no condemnation of them that are in Christ. When we got saved... Our human nature didn't just vaporize. It's still there. If you don't believe it, just read the Bible. There are a lot of godly men and women who just blew it big time after they knew God, after they knew Jesus. What worse sin could you ever commit than have Jesus over there having his his back lacerated with a whip bleeding out on the Antonius whipping post on the courtyard floor and somebody walk up to you and say, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? you? go, what are you going to say to that? They're beating him to death. They're going to crucify him in a minute. You're one of them, aren't you? Boom. That's called the moment of truth. Right then, you've got the two parts of you at war. One's pulling this way, saying, no, you don't know him. The other one's saying, stand up and be counted. Peter caved in after three and a half years of walking with Jesus, after seeing him walk on water, after Peter walked on water, after seeing the the miraculous power of God, blind eyes opened, lepers healed, the dead raised on three occasions. and, And Peter himself looked at the woman and said, I do not know who that man is. Three times in the same night. So just because we're saved doesn't mean our carnal nature goes anywhere. We still live with it. Paul said, what a wretched man I am. I find this law at work within me. Whenever I want to do right, evil is still right there with me. That's what we're talking about here. So considering the trials of our lives, pure joy, might be one of the most difficult things we do because it is not our nature to do that. Because in our natural state, we are self-preservationists. We are self-focused. We are self-centric. Very few people as young children are just naturally givers. How many of you ever seen Sesame Street when it was on TV? Yeah, my kids used to watch it. One of my favorite episodes was Big Bird Can Share. You see, we have to teach little kids that sharing is a good thing. Why? Because mommy and daddy are not the first words they learn. Mine and no are the first words they learn. We think they're saying mama. They're trying to say mama, mama. I'm joking. All the younger moms here going, no, they're not. They're saying mama. No, they are. Okay, they are. You believe what you want. (laughs) So, how do we make this transition? How? How do we make this transition from the carnal, the negative, the bitter, the edgy, the the Murphy's Law mentality? How do we transition? And we're bombarded with this stuff all the time. We just expect it. we've gotten gotten bombarded in our lives with so much negativity, we've grown to expect it. Let me tell you something about that. And I'm telling you the truth, you're going to get what you expect. You just are. The only miracles that ever occurred in the history of humanity, they didn't occur by accident. They occurred because somebody prevailed upon God and believed. That belief, that expectation. Now faith is being sure, Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. That's expectation. And And the real trick comes when we've, we've gotten ourselves moving in the right direction, we're moving away from all this negative, all right, I'm going to change, all right, I'm going to change, I'm going to start expecting good. Listen, as soon as you start doing that, immediately Satan's going to engineer negativity and he's going to throw it at you with spear and dart and spear and arrow and javelin one right after another. So Hebrew, I'm sorry, Ephesians says we take up the whole armor of God. It says we put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted with the preparation the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, and the shield of what? With which we can do what? Extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. That is part of the power of faith that we tend to forget. We think faith is just being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. That's the positive, that's the offense of faith. Faith also has a defensive posture, and that is to extinguish the negativity Satan wants to throw in our lives. So how do we make this transition? We're able to do this through honesty and understanding. Honesty. We we have to be honest with ourselves about the scenario and situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, I said this last Wednesday night. I'm going to say it again. William Shakespeare was a demonized pervert. I believe that. So was Sigmund Freud. If you want to know psychology, please do not believe that Sigmund Freud knows anything about it. He, he probably had as many problems as anybody else. The Word of God is the best psychology manual in the whole world. I'm an educated man. I've studied psychology, and I'm going to tell you Sigmund Freud's not who you want to study. You may be required to study and regurgitate his stuff to get a passing grade in a particular college or postgraduate work. But trust me, Sigmund Freud is is no expert in psychology. I don't care what the world tells you. Now, to be honest, William Shakespeare wrote some of the most profound words in human literature in Othello's advice when he wrote these words, to thine own self be true. We offered a course here several years back in the other facility, and it was called self-confrontation. It was a very demanding study, And it was not not original to this church or to me. I didn't write it. It was actually put together by some uh, Baptist brothers and sisters, uh, to my knowledge and recollection. But it was a demanding 27, I think, 27-week course study course. And basically the whole idea of it was to get us to look at our own selves with abject, complete, unbiased, objective honesty and to be truthful about who we are And where we are with God and where we're living our lives. My commensurate illustration for that is our lives are kind of like a train. We've got these tracks out there and we're on the train. Pull the emergency cord and stop the train once in a while. Get off the train and stop. Take a breath and look at where you've been. Look at where you are. Look at where you're going. Take some inventory of your life. And if you'll do this on a regular basis from the perspective of considerate pure joy. Can I, can I tell you something, kind of a secret? Maybe we should all try to see life as a great adventure. I think sometimes we wring our hands and we take life so seriously. I got a letter from the IRS a few years ago. You owe, owe us $22,000. I got together a whole book of receipts with names, places, dates, and reasons written on each one pasted them together, made a little school project that I could have, could have defended a doctoral thesis with it. Went to the IRS building in Atlanta, put it down in front of the lady. She said, I'll be back. Kept me sitting there for about an hour and a half. Came back, kept my book, sat down in front of me and said, I'm going to disallow everything you wrote. I was astonished. I said, why? She said, here's what she said. And I ain't done with this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get my money back. With unmitigated temerity, she looked at me and brazenly said, I don't believe you. Now, I'm glad we live in a nation of laws. Because if those were medieval times, (laughs) aside from that, see, there's that spirit that's at war within me, you know. We have to choose what we're going to do. It's not what happens to us in life. One of my 117 undeniable truths of life. It's not what happens to us. It's how we choose to respond. And we do. We're able to do this through honesty and understanding. Honesty with ourselves. What have I done to bring this trouble into my life? Is this my responsibility? What part have I played in this trial? Has... Has the end. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is like Johnny come lately. Maybe you've done a whole bunch of stuff for a long, long time and nothing's happened. And now all of a sudden, kind of like a delayed reaction, this slow-growing seed is finally coming up and harvesting after a long time of dormancy. Let me tell you, man, God's gracious and he's forgiving. But just because God forgives our sin does not necessarily mean that he ameliorates the consequences. I want to say that again. God will forgive our sin, but he will not always make the consequences go away. David sinned with Bathsheba. The worst part of what he did with Bathsheba is that Uriah, who who was her husband, the man that he had killed over it, was one of his 30 mighty men. I mean, out of all the hundreds of thousands of soldiers in David's army, Uriah was one of the 30 mighty men. It's in, the, it's in, it's in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, at the, the last chapters. You can read Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. The, the list of the elite warriors. And David had him killed. Man, God forgave David, remember? But he said two things are going to happen. He, didn't, he did not mitigate the I mean, the consequences. He said, the baby's going to die. And it did. And he said, the sword of violence is never going to leave your house. And it never did, even to David's grandchildren. Never left his house. So we've got to be honest with ourselves. Have I brought this trial on myself? And secondly, we've got to have understanding. You know, the book of Proverbs is so powerful. The first eight chapters are all about how, actually the first ten, are, are all about how important it is to get wisdom, to gain understanding. Solomon talks about rubies and emeralds and diamonds and gold and all this stuff. He said, beyond all that, get wisdom, get understanding. Through understanding, we're able to contemplate and perceive what is actually happening and to understand how to view this as pure joy. When we, when we begin to understand what God is doing, when we begin to understand how this came about, when we begin to understand other people. Now, let, let, me, let me just give you something here, and I've said this before, but sometimes you say something, and you might not be listening at the moment, or you might be going through something that's got you half mentally distracted or whatever. Sometimes teachers and preachers say stuff, and it doesn't go ka-chunk. But I hope this moment right here, that when I say this to you, it'll go ka-chunk. I'm going to wait till the phone stops ringing so that I can say this and you won't be distracted. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. My phone rang last Wednesday night. So I was up here. No, it was the alarm clock. It was the alarm clock started going off at the altar call Sunday. I'm hearing. And immediately, immediately I thought, that's that stupid alarm clock. And then I thought, consider it your joy. i know i'm going to give you something now that if you can remember this when people are mean when they're selfish when they're hurtful when they're when they're thoughtless when they wound you when they abandon you when they leave you and don't even give you a word when they're so self-centered they don't even know you exist when when they exclude you and the whole world seems mean I want to give you this. this. This has probably helped me regarding other people as probably more than anything else God ever showed me. The Lord, and this is so simple. And when I say it, you're going to go, yeah, but the more you think about this, the more it helps you process through to a place of mercy and compassion with people, even mean people. This helped me more than anything God ever showed me. Showed me this years ago. And here it is, very simple. People do what they do because that's where they are. People do what they do because that's where they are. People are mean because that's where they are in their walk with God. They're just not mature enough to understand love yet. People are greedy because that's what's the Lord of their life at that season of their lives. People are selfish because they haven't grown past that childishness of, mind, mind, no. Selfishness is one of the most immature and childish things a person can be. And part of a great part of selfishness is never stopping to think how our conduct is going to affect other people. That's a great part of selfishness. How is my conduct going to affect other people? We can't just go through life willy-nilly not caring how what we do is going to impact other people. Every decision you make is going to impact other people, especially those who are closest to you. So we should always be thinking about how is I'm getting ready to say this. I'm thinking I'm gonna, this is gonna, no, there, there's got to be a filter. There just has to be a filter between here and here. If there's not, go to Ace Hardware tonight and buy one or Walmart or somewhere, get a filter. You can't just say whatever pops in your head. You can, but it's like walking down the street with a Gatlin gun and firing away. You just, we just don't do that. People do what they do because that's where they are in their walk with God. They do what they do because that's where they are in their level of maturity as a person. They do what they do because that's where they are in their in their mindset, in their outlook, in their considering it, in their perspective, in their processes of life. People do what they do because that's just where they are. Now, the follow-up to that from an opposing point of view is always going to be, yeah, but they ought to know better. Maybe we should all know better in some areas of our lives. But we do dumb things anyway. They just happened to do one that hurt us. So people do what they do because that's where they are. You do not expect a nine-month-old toddler who can't really even walk yet to have a sensible conversation with you, to not scream. She doesn't, or he doesn't know how to communicate when they want something. (laughs) When they want something, all they know is one, one volume and one word. They want something. They don't understand saying, Hey, I'm a little hungry. Could you prep me a sandwich? They don't understand how to do that. They just know, ah! She's still at the stage where one of us walks out of the room. To her, we have vanished from the earth. The corner, there's, it's, it's, it's like a black hole in the kitchen. We walk around the corner, they're gone. Ah! And we come right back, Oh, okay, it's okay. That's where she is. She's nine months old. We don't expect much more out of her. But I expect more than that. Out of a 29-year-old. Not much more, but some more. (laughs) I expect a lot more out of a 39-year-old. And a whole lot more out of a 49-year-old. But I will tell you this. Some of the most unspiritual, wicked, evil, selfish, mean people I have ever met had crowning hairs of silver and white on their head. Age does not make you mature. It is not how long you've been doing something. It's how well you paid attention. There are people who have been playing golf for 50 years, swinging the golf club wrong, they still can't break 100. It's not how long you've been doing something. It's how well you paid attention. It's the application of it to your life. So, we're able to do this through honesty and understanding. Try to be honest about what you're going through and try to understand what dynamics have coalesced in your life to engender the situation and scenario in which you find yourself try to understand what brought it about try to understand what God may be teaching you in that process try to understand what brought you there where you are in the, in the trial and where you need to go to exit and to conquer and to overcome in the trial all trials in life the Bible says that no matter what happens Romans 828 means that no matter what happens to us God if, we're, if we will work with God he will work to bring good out of it that' mean everything is God's will it means he will work with us if we're willing to bring good out of it no matter how bad it may seem you might not be able to understand at all how God could ever bring good out of what you're going through right now but he's God he specializes in the impossible so now what's God's view of all this I'm gonna wrap this up with these three thoughts and then we'll do a nugget and then we'll have some Q&A time we'll go through this pretty quickly What is God's view of all this happening? What is God's view of of trials going through our lives? Number one, God wants us to develop a faith-oriented view of life. Faith is very important to God. Hebrews chapter 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because first we must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I said 6, I meant Hebrews 11, I believe it's verse 6. So without faith it is impossible to please God. Uh, The Bible says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Uh, The concept of faith is dealt with in the realm of the miraculous more than any other single thing. Now, let me give you a tip on miracles here and getting your prayers answered. God does not answer prayer because you need a prayer answered. God doesn't respond to your need. God does not respond to our needs. God does not respond to our wants. God does not respond to our tears. God does not even respond to our crying out in emotional wailing. God responds to one thing. Read the Bible, five words. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say that God responds to? Faith-filled prayer, period, that's it, nothing else. You know, the Bible is is replete with the Bible saying that God looks down and he saw the burden of his people and he heard their cry. Faith-filled prayer. If you read, every miracle in the Bible took place on the heels of faith-filled prayer. God is trying to teach us something here. He's trying to teach us to have a faith-filled, oriented view of life. That's what God wants us to do. To walk through life with an overall view of faith. Why? Because, simply put, we trust Him. Because we trust Him. Secondly, God wants us to understand the power of a positive attitude. Now, I know Bob Schuler wrote a book years ago, The Power of Positive Thinking, and you know it got uh, all kinds of commentary about it, and I've never read the book, so I'm not going to comment on it other than to say positive thinking in and of itself is no substitute for spiritual reality. Positive thinking can become humanism by another name. However, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a lot of power in positive thinking. I'm not a Bob Schuler fan, but I will, and I never have been, but I will tell you this. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks within himself, so he is. If you read about Jesus' life, I don't know how you picture Jesus. I don't know how you uh, have him in, in mental, mentally imaged in your mind. Um, a lot of people have Jesus pictured as this white-robed figure with a blue sash and a shepherd's crook and a little baby sheep walking around and saying pious things, you know. But the truth is, everywhere Jesus went, He either created effervescent joy or a riot. Sometimes both. Um, The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Right on the heels of love, joy is the very second thing that God wants us to produce is the fruit of the Spirit. Think about that. The Bible says that everything in life is not about food and drink, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. I could go on and on and on and on talking about joy. So God wants us to understand the power of a positive attitude. And that positive attitude is in us and should be in us because we know and believe that God is our Father. We rest in His arms no matter what happens. He is always looking out for our best interest. That's not just an attitude or an outlook. That's the biblical truth. God is our Father. He only wants what's best for us. He wants us to trust and rest, and the Bible says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. That's amazing. I know it's not always easy to keep a positive attitude, <clears throat> but keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus sure does help. Peter walked on water till he looked at the problem. Thirdly, God wants the gospel to look, good, look like good news to unbelievers. Titus says that in every way we should make the gospel and the teaching about Christ attractive the word gospel translated from the greek literally means good news so god wants us you know when i was in the youth group in church we used to have a little song a little boy it was supposed to be the cool youthful song back i guess before there was really even rock and roll music or at the very outset of it church people thought this was the cool teenage teenage song you know um, compared to elvis and the beatles it didn't rank very high but It was, we are Christ ambassadors, and our colors we must unfurl. Anybody know that? We must wear a spotless robe, clean and righteous before the world. We must show we're saved from sin, and that Jesus dwells within, proving duly that we're truly Christ ambassadors. Break it down for the young people. Just a just a woeful little song, you know. But the truth of the matter is that that little that little statement, we are Christ's ambassadors, comes right out of the Bible. It actually says we are Christ's ambassadors in scripture. Paul said that we are living letters. We're supposed to be the gospel in flesh. Good news. How can we be good news if we walk around like this? Back when I had Knee pain all the time. That's what I looked like all the time. I just, I had a permanent scowl and a crease. I think it was, I mean, I walked around with like a a welder in my knee for 10 years. And all the people in church probably thought, "Well, he's just an unloving, mean person. No, I'm not. I'm in incredible pain. The tiny bowl man's in my knee with a torch. It was either that or Percocet. So I was either, or... Pastor's loving today. What's wrong with him next Tuesday? He's not really loving. He's high. I wasn't high, really. I didn't take that much. (laughs) But God wants the gospel in us to look like good news, not sourpuss news. Ladies and gentlemen, the sourpuss news, first assembly of God, wherever, you know. No. We ought to look like we're having some fun in this life. So. Wrapping this up, the heart of the matter, what is this really all about, this first verse? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, because you know, and we'll get to that. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I want to stop there, because the next phrase has its own separate teaching. Faith-filled prayer is the only thing God responds to. He is actually teaching us about what it means to walk with him, in relationship we consider it pure joy because we're walking in relationship with god if if you walked up to a man on the street who is a multi-billionaire but you had no relationship with him you could probably beg plead and ask and he's not going to give you any money but if you're his son it may be different you see God is trying to teach us what it means to walk in relationship. I remember as a little boy, we went to Pigeon Forge, rented a motel. I was probably 10 years old. And my dad my dad could swim like no human being I've ever seen. These Olympic swimmers, Michael Phelps better be thankful to God, my dad never decided to go into swimming. He swam, I can't even describe it, he swam like a robot. I mean, his movements were so mechanical, I'd watch him swim and it was just... And I finally asked him, how would you learn to swim so good? He said, well, before you were born for years, I'd always go down to Black River. And Black River was a pretty good-sized river, flowed pretty, pretty swift, deep river, and full of, full of alligators and snakes and all that, wild, you know. He said, I would jump in, I would, swim, I would swim downstream a half a mile across the river, swim upstream a mile, and then swim back downstream a half a mile every day after work. And he used to jog 11 miles to go to work each way. So my dad was in shape. That's why he could squeeze 300 pounds on a bathroom scale, pick up a motor block and walk off. We could do things you just really aren't really human. So, But my dad swam like a, I can't even make my body. It was, it was just movement like that. And he in a regular swimming pool, he'd do like two kicks, and he was across the pool. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I remember we got, he got out in the pool, and, and I was up on the side of the pool, and he got out in the deep water. He said, all right, son, come over here to the side of the pool. And I walked over there, and he said, jump. Nah, my, maybe I was younger I don't know he said jump and I said he said jump I'll catch you I said you promise he said I promise <laughs> no hesitation when he said I promise I sailed off and he caught me my dad wasn't one of these guys that throw you in the pool swim or drown boy that wasn't my daddy's way he taught me how to swim Um, I have never been able to and will never be able to swim even in the same hemisphere as my father. I don't think anybody ever has. He was was just a different guy in the water. But I trusted him. That's what God's trying to teach us, to trust him. I'll catch you. That's how we can consider it pure joy because James 1 and Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God is is working for the good of those who love him relationship and are called according to his purpose god is always working for our good i read philippians this morning in my devotional time faithful is he who began a good work in you to see it through to completion that's why we can consider it pure joy Because no matter what's going on in your life, God is working every moment, every situation, every circumstance, every trial, every test. He is working to perfect what he started in your life. And if you will allow him to, God is going to perfect it. He's not going to let it fall to the ground. He never failed at anything he ever started to do. So it's all about relationship. Now, last three questions, we're going to wrap this up. What is the difference between God testing us and temptation? Who's got a thought on that? What is the difference between God testing us and being tempted? C.J.? James later on says, When we are tempted, let no one say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So when we're tempted, you're exactly right, God is not tempting us. Temptation is always for our destruction, testing is always for our improvement. The difference would be if we're in the armed forces and The the trainer, the drill instructor or the the Navy SEAL operator trainer is out there uh, the ranger instructor and he says okay, I want you to get in your full ruck, full gear, everything I want you to walk across this swamp that's a test I want to see you on the other side of this swamp in one hour that's a test temptation would be for your buddy to say man, I'm sick of this, let's quit and throw our hats in the ring I don't want to be a Navy SEAL this bad. I'm tired of this guy yelling in my face. I want a hot meal and a warm shower and a good night's sleep. Don't you? That's temptation. See the difference? One's a test for your good. The other one's trying to make you bail out on the whole thing. I wish we had more time to talk, but we don't. Secondly, is it possible to grow past being tempted? You get so mature in God. Now, now be careful. This is almost a trick question. I want to warn you. Don't embarrass yourself. Uh, This is almost a trick question. Can you ever grow and mature to the place where you will never be tempted, Michael? Never. That's the right answer. Why? That's part of it. Why else? CJ? Okay, why else? Because Jesus was tempted. If Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are, we know we're never going to be more mature than Jesus. So if Jesus can be tempted, so can we. Third question, is it possible, be careful now, is it possible to overcome every temptation every time? I'm talking about is it biblically doable to overcome every temptation every time? I don't want anybody to answer this. So I'm going to answer it for you. The answer is, the answer is yes, it is possible, biblically provable. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. So biblically, positionally, in in potential power, we do have the ability to overcome every temptation every time. If you just read those five words, what does the Bible say? Now, I know what you're all thinking. Yeah, but... Here's the difference between faith and vision and doubt and negativity. Faith and vision says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Pastor just quoted that. I want that. I want that. I know I never get so mature I I won't be tempted, but I can overcome every temptation every time. It says four things that, that, that whenever we're tempted, that no temptation sees you except what is common to man. So... You, you don't have the VIP special superfly James Bond temptation. God is faithful. With every temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that we can stand up under it. Wow. So biblically, yes, we can resist temptation every time. Every temptation, every time. The problem is we don't do that because we think that's too hard. And so we buy books from people who, are, who, who I call grace-nicks. They're very famous preachers, and they'll actually tell you, stop trying to be so holy because you can't be. Stop trying to resist temptation so much because you can't. And a lot of the stuff you read in these books that people write are, are actually in total opposition to what the Bible really does say. The problem is most Christians live way down here, when Jesus died for us to live way up here. And this is why Satan has strongholds in our lives and our growth is limited and our miracles in America don't happen like they do in Africa because people in Africa are just simple-minded enough to read 1 Corinthians ten thirteen and go, oh, praise God, I believe that. I'm going to do that. I'm telling you, they are. They're not as educated. They're, not as in, they're, they're probably more intelligent than a lot of Americans. They just don't have the education. Mark Twain said, I'll never let my education interfere with my learning. I like what Mark Twain said. I'll never let my education interfere with my learning. I impersonated Mark Twain in a drama one time. It was great. Learned a lot about him. So it's important for us to understand that in resident potential, biblically, we can resist every temptation every time. So how do we do it? How do we do it? We do it by walking in closeness to God to the point that no matter what, Jesus did it. He was tempted in every way like as we are, yet was without sin. What the Bible says, yes? Hebrews chapter 4. That's what the Bible says. So he was our example. So I'm not setting the bar, I'm not setting the bar anywhere. I'm just reading the Bible. Okay? It, it's a promise. Instead of us thinking, I can't do that. We ought to be thinking, man, what a loaded promise is that. People get offended with this stuff, and instead, they ought to be rejoicing over it. Thanking God for it. The potential is out there. You can resist every temptation every single time. The Bible says so. Without qualification. The passage is in context. It stands on its own. It's correctly derivated, properly exegeted, and aptly applied. It is rightly divided truth. It just says it. Problem is, we just need to have the want to. We just need to have the want to. How many of you have the want to? If you have the want to, we can do it. Let's all stand. Father, I thank you and I praise you tonight for these beautiful people. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the Word of God that is so rich, that is so powerful, that has truth in it that we haven't even begun to understand the depth and power of yet. There's so much to be mined out of your Word. It's it's life changing. It really, truly is. I think sometimes, Lord, we just read over these verses and we've heard them before, and we stop. We don't really stop to to register. What does that actually mean when I apply it to my life? What does that mean in everyday life? What is that really saying to us? Lord, if we'll stop and consider and meditate on your word and dig into it and, and, and really process our way through it a little bit and rightly divide it, it is the most powerful set of truths the world has ever known. It, it can empower us to overcome like we cannot yet even comprehend. I pray that all of us here will begin to grasp the breadth and depth and height and richness of your word and your promises. We thank you. We praise you. I thank you for these beautiful people. Bring us back here Sunday with a, with somebody in tow who's with us, that we brought to the kingdom of God, that we brought to the house of the Lord, and let us come to worship you and rejoice together. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. God bless you. We love you. Take your study sheets home and, uh, and meditate on this stuff.